Hello and welcome to the Painting Podcast, Episode 5, Hilma of Clint, Seances and Symbolism. On this podcast, you're going to get some art history from a painter's perspective. We'll be looking at the life and times of Hilma of Clint today, dissecting some of her paintings and figuring out what was her inspiration to make some of these works. Recently, there's been a lot of resurgence in interest in her work, and I was actually lucky enough to see it at the New Museum in New York City three years ago. I was at a meeting um, at a place called Rico Maresca, which deals primarily in outsider art. And during this meeting, I was told to go to the new museum and the paintings I see there are gonna rock my world. They're gonna change everything I think about painting. So with this in mind, I went over to the new museum, which had this unbelievable exhibition called Keeper, or The Keepers, I think it was called. And in this exhibition, they had all these different stuffed teddy bears that they had put into cases and documented from World War II. And a lot of it had to do with things that we keep. You know, what do we keep? What do we pass on to other generations? And Hilma of Clint is also quite interesting in that regard, um, as we'll get into. So what is it about her that makes her so revolutionary? The main thing is that she's making abstract paintings before abstract paintings are a thing. And she's making these abstract paintings for a different reason than just trying to get famous and being on the cutting edge. Uh, but she s painted them nonetheless. And basically, when we start thinking about painting, I thought it would be important to go into, you know, first give you a general overview of how painting is supposed to work and how we used to think of it. A lot of times we think of abstract painting beginning with Kandinsky, Vasily Kandinsky. And um, let's just go by the timeline here. So we're, so we're sure to get everything right. Around 1908, Kandinsky is painting seascapes in Rotterdam. You know, they're kind of impressionistic looking seascapes, but nonetheless, they're pretty tame, ordinary paintings of seascapes. Later on in the early 1910s, he would join the Blue Rider, which we've spoken about quite a few times on this podcast, a group of German expressionists, and his landscapes would become much more expressive during this period. Later on, around 1919, he starts making these completely abstract paintings, and they're also based on something um, that is untouchable in a way. And we'll come back to that idea in a little bit. But his paintings are often about music, you know? They're not about an apple on a table. So how do we depict music, right? And this is 1919. Later on, he goes on to teach at Bauhaus in Germany in the 1920s, and we would get abstract art cemented in the place where it was supposed to be, right? Well, Hilma of Klint kind of messes up this timeline, and I kind of feel like I'm, you know, that guy Solarkis on um, 
ancient aliens with the, the crazy hair coming out here. But there are paintings which predate these abstract paintings, which we've all come to know and love from people like Kandinsky, um, Malevich is another one, Paul Clay would be another one. He did some paintings just of squares in addition to those children's uh, like looking illustrative works. So these people, again, this is 1919, 1920s. That, that's when a lot of these abstract paintings are being created. With Hilma of Clint, we have to go back. We have to go way back. And um, she's, she begins participating in seances and stuff like this in the late 1890s. And she gets involved with this new religion called Theosophy. And if we start looking at what's going on at the time, there is a lot of people are switching from an agrarian way of living and they're moving to cities. So let's think about what happens when somebody moves to a city. Well, they get exposed to a lot of different types of ideas. That's one thing. But they also have an ability to kind of start their life over again in a certain way. See, these people would have generally been in villages of, you know, a couple hundred people where families had known each other for generations. And certain traditions and certain belief systems would be very difficult to break free from. We could probably even equate these to some small rural communities throughout the world today as well that are still unaccepting of certain lifestyle choices, certain sexual orientations, all these sort of things. These types of communities are kind of the last to grasp um, the new thing, so to speak. So these people are moving to cities and often they're giving up their old way of looking at the world. And because of that, um, this burgeoning spiritual movement begins to start bubbling up. And it sounds a little bit stranger to us in, in many regards, but even this way of looking at spirituality and Christianity goes back um, hundreds and hundreds of years. So the, even in the 1890s where they're looking at seances and stuff like this, we can, we can follow the timeline back to the 1600s with uh, this, these types of thinking connecting religion and science. Where else have we heard that? Of course, in the Renaissance. But so there are other things changing, though, at the time around um, the 1890s. And one thing that's changing is we're kind of beginning to deal with things we can't really see. They, they seem like magic to us. Kind of like when cell phones came out. You know, back in the 80s, everybody had those big brick phones and they had a long antenna that they'd have to put on their, the roof of their limousine or Ferrari. And they'd get that phone out and like plug it into the um, cigarette lighter and they'd make a call that would probably wasn't very clear. And even that, that, that kind of seemed revolutionary at the time. And computing power, stuff like that to us now, that is kind of commonplace. You know, everyone's got a, like they say, you know, everyone has a computer in their pocket now that is far more powerful 
than the computers that got us onto the moon in the 1969, I believe that was. So we have these powerful little things in our pocket and we kind of take them for granted, but how do they work? You know, it's kind of magic. Well, back in the 1890s, we're starting to see uh, the beginnings of photography. We're starting to see the beginnings of X-ray technology so we can see inside the body with, with a photograph. We can see through stuff, right? Um, radio waves are beginning to be used. Again, this is, you know, it's some sort of magical connection through the air that communicates knowledge. And of course, you know, airplanes um, are beginning to actually get off the ground, which probably made no sense. It still doesn't make any sense to me um, when I get into an airplane. But all these things are happening. So the, the view of what's real in the world is changing. When we can communicate, we don't even have to communicate through a wire. We don't even have to put our on antenna on, on the top of our Ferrari. You know, at least then we had an antenna. There's not even the idea of an antenna anymore in our, in our cell phones. So similarly, the, the culture is going through this uh, revolution of the mind and they're moving to cities. They're being cut off from their families and tradition. And this gives birth to new religions and new philosophies. Hilma of Klint would be participating in seances and these sort of thing in the late 1890s. And at just 17 years old, her sister would die a year later at 18. And Hilma would continue to try to communicate with her. I'm sure that was something that was quite, quite tragic for her. And anyone who has experienced the death of a loved one knows that, you know, often we do try to talk to them. I think that is probably more common than most of us really want to acknowledge, whether we're trying to remember our grandmothers or great grandmothers or grandfathers during certain moments. And often, you know, I have, I have said thank you and thought about people and participated in these types of conversations and in my head with, with people who are no longer alive. So it might not be as far out as they're making it all to be. However, Hilma would also participate in a group called the Five. And this was a group of all women and they would conduct seances. They would have some sort of a ritual and then they would, you know, probably all hold hands or something like that and conduct basically a seance trying to get in contact with um, loved ones or more commonly um, these people they called the high masters. And these weren't even necessarily gods. You know, it wasn't like they were trying to communicate with Jesus, although they did read um, from the New Testament. And so a lot of this is Christian based as well. It's not some sort of, you know, pagan uh, ritual where they've created a whole new religion or gone back to a previous religion which existed in their culture. Instead, they've kind of morphed Christianity into this spiritual look on life. So the, the woman at the head of theosophy, this is this way of looking at the world, 
her name was Helena Blavatsky or Madame Blavatsky. And she she comes to Sweden in the in the 1890s. And previously she she comes from a really wealthy um, aristocratic uh, family in Russia. And she would be very, very well traveled at a young age. And before coming to Sweden, she was in India, actually. So you can imagine at that point in time, you know, we're not watching documentaries now where we can get a glimpse of somebody's life pretty easily. Back then, these people actually traveled to these places. So you can imagine what a jolt that would be to go from growing up in Russia to actually being in Tibet. So this woman has knowledge that most people just, there's no way they could access because she's lived it. Uh, she comes to Sweden in the, in the 1890s, and one of her big ideas of theosophy is this idea of the macrocosmos and the microcosmos. So this is kind of the idea that everything, the way I interpret it, is that basically everything is a fractal, right? So the, the big stuff and the little stuff relate to each other directly to the point where the big stuff and the little stuff are kind of the same stuff, right? So that was a really big part of their thinking. And also, when we look at Hilma of Klint's paintings that she's doing, a lot of these have direct reference to this same idea. Essentially, we can just think of them um, as fractals. And, you know, a lot of these ideas, like I'm saying, people like Madame Blavatsky, we, we might think this is a lone guru type of character who came out of nowhere. However, these types of ideas, you know, we can go back to the 1600s, like I was saying before, and or, the, you know, the 18th century. And Rosicrucians basically believe that uh, very similar ideas. And a lot of their ideas are also blending science um, thinking with Christianity as well. You can still see a lot of Rosicrucian churches throughout Europe. In fact, in Prague, I remember there's a town square there called Yoshihos Bodebrad. And at this town square, there's actually a large Rosicrucian cross. Um, it's just the equal-sided cross. And a lot of these people believed uh, similar ideas as well. So you can even look back further to um, the Knights Templar as well. If you look at what the Knights Templar are wearing, oftentimes it's also an equal-sided cross. Uh, Hilma of Klint would also wear one of these crosses. She was known for wearing a cross on her neck. At the center of the cross was a circle, and inside that circle was a rose. So this was something she held very, very close to her heart and something that would manifest itself within her work. If you're thinking about Rosicrucians, you can also imagine how these people influence things like Freemasonry um, as well. And I know this is starting to sound like the Da Vinci Code, but this is just reality in this case. 
So she's, she's with this group called the five and this is this circle of women and they all shared her belief in the importance of trying to make contact with the so-called high masters, often by the way of seances. And her paintings would be diagrams of these spiritual ideas and philosophical ideas. So when we start looking at her paintings, we can see that, you know, they would just be a flat, they're quite large um, for starters. They're often, you know, six feet or so, you know, two, three meters by two to three meters. So these are quite large paintings. And in the center would be a circle where certain colors would denote certain genders and symbolism would be replete within these images. So her paintings are basically these diagrams, illustrations of spiritual ideas. And she would go, these were ideas that were with her for quite a long time. She would grow up with, you know, a great interest in math and botany and these sort of things. However, later on, um, she came from a, you know, fairly well-to-do family. Her dad was a naval commander. And then later on, she would move to Stockholm, where she'd go to art school there. And she did really well in art school, just making paintings of landscapes and portraits and these sort of things. And so she continues on to the Royal Academy in Stockholm. And she's at the top of her class. And because of this, kind of like a reward from the school, the school gave her this, like the best studio. The school, you know, they had their campus. And then right in downtown Stockholm, like the cultural hub of the entire city, they would give one student the ability to work and live there. And so Hilma got this studio. And she's kind of smack in the center of the cultural hub of Stockholm. And she would make these fairly ordinary uh, landscape paintings and portraits and these sort of things. You can kind of think of this similar to how, you know, perhaps a ceramicist who's making more progressive work still makes some pots and some cups and these sort of things. And I imagine Hilma probably approached this in a similar way where she was, you know, making stuff that people are going to buy. And she was, you know, financially successful at doing so. So she's not somebody who was struggling, you know, on the outside of society, trying to make a living somehow. She was somebody who was making paintings. She's used to making paintings. You know, paintings are like um, inventory in a shop in a certain way. So this is a very... Um, pragmatic way of looking at painting in a certain respect. I have to imagine creating this type of commercial work for a market must also instill some sort of beliefs that one has that gives them more freedom in a way as well. I can imagine um, when you're, you're so good at painting, you've become so good at, you know, just pushing paint around and making stuff dark and making stuff light and uh, mixing certain colors together that I can imagine this kind of frees you up in another way. You know, it's kind of like I make music sometimes and do sound stuff, and I have no connection to um, 
I have no responsibility to, to make it according to how music is supposed to be. And that kind of frees me up in a certain way as well. I know how to do these things correctly, but when you choose to break the rules, it's, it's an unbel- unbelievable amount of freedom. And I imagine she did feel this freedom um, in the early days. So she would keep making these, these paintings for a while, but she continues to be connected to theosophy. And she ends up meeting Rudolf Steiner. And Steiner is a very influential person to this day. Many of you might not know how, but I'll tell you. If you've ever heard of a Waldorf school, he's the guy that basically created all the ideas that go into Waldorf schools. And these schools, I just Googled out, um, you know, how many are in the United States. There's 150 Waldorf schools in the United States currently. So these schools are still all over the world. Rudolf Steiner meets Hilma, and basically he starts telling her about his ideas in art. And again, this, a lot of this has to do with atoms. Like you've seen the end of Men in Black, if you've ever seen that, where it's like it pans out and then the world um, goes to becomes a marble that's in a bag of marbles. And then that is inside of another marble. And then like an alien is shooting the marble. So it's like a, a world within a world. And atoms and the ability to look at atoms and cells and these sort of things at the time that were scientific breakthroughs reinforce this idea, like I said before, basically that everything is a fractal. So what else is happening? This is around 1908, uh, 1906, okay? So Hilma is, she's beginning to try to make these paintings starting around 1906 for something she calls the temple. And the temple is not like, it's not like somebody, Madame Blavatsky or Rudolf Steiner, are, it's not like they came to her and they're like, we're going to make a temple. You know, this isn't the Sistine Chapel here where there's a clear client or anything like this. She's getting these ideas from, for the temple from her seances and meditative experience and these, these sort of things. So she starts making paintings around 1906 for the temple, and a lot of them are just simple circles with color variations on square backgrounds, these sort of things, very meditative imagery. Oftentimes, they're very symmetrical as well. And if we look at what other people are doing at this time, so Mondrian, if we all know Mondrian now, yeah, if you don't, go look him up, but he's known for doing squares and strips of color on on white canvases. But around 1908, Mondrian is just making his uh, paintings of trees at this time. So he's still, you know, these are the titans of abstract art. So Mondrian is painting trees. They're, you know, they're pretty, I like his trees. They're like my favorite paintings of his. But he's, you know, they're still trees. They're still a thing, right? He hadn't broke into pure abstraction yet. Malevich, the the guy who famously painted black, you know, the black square on a white background, and then later white on white, which is a white square on a white background, he'd paint those in around 1918. Okay, so around 1908, Malevich is painting people at a dinner party, like in a park. Okay, so here's another titan of abstract art, you know. 
he's making stuff. He's making representational imagery at this time. Hilma, no, she's not. She's making these spiritual vision um, paintings that are completely abstract and lack representation of any type. You know, they're referencing more like I said before, the colors are a code to certain um, other ideas as are the geometry and circles and these sort of things involved. So when we start thinking about these ideas of completely abstract painting and abstract drawing, it's hard to ignore something that would come up. We, we generally associate with surrealists, but it's also older. So as early as the 1890s, people would do this thing called automatic drawing. And basically what automatic drawing is, is you hold a piece of charcoal in your hand and you close your eyes, or maybe you don't have to close your eyes, but you close your eyes and then you just start making marks on the canvas, letting, trying to disassociate your mind and attempt to control what you're making on the page. So you're not making a drawing of an apple on a table. These come out as purely abstract drawings. And we know that a lot of people involved with seances would also be doing these types of automatic drawings at the time. So these are things that we can go back farther. We can always go back farther. But Hilma, you know, first person to definitely use oil paint on canvas and kind of elevate these types of drawings to a whole new level. And she's definitely, without a doubt, the first person to do this. Um, so she continues to, you know, have these seances and then she's meeting with the five, these women who would, you know, do these seances together. And during one of them, she's told to make these paintings for the temple. And I actually have the quote that she said um, regarding her paintings. She said, the pictures were painted directly through me without any preliminary drawings and with great force. I had no idea what the paintings were supposed to depict. Nevertheless, I worked swiftly and surely without changing a single brush stroke. So she's almost being channeled by somebody else. She talks about that in the creation of her work. It's almost not even her. Her body is a conduit for this other force which is creating this painting itself. And so she creates all these different paintings and she does show them a couple times. She has a couple shows of these works. And, you know, I think it's probably like where there's like a fan base of people and they know so much about a subject, they kind of want to tear it apart in some regards. So I think that's, that could be what happened because she was only showing these paintings, you know, a handful of times at these theosophical meetups, more or less. And, you know, people were like, oh, that's kind of cool. Um, but other people are like, yeah, but should yellow really represent female? And, you know, everybody's got to, you know, be a critic, right? So she, she doesn't get a lot of attention for these um, abstract paintings. And she would die uh, at around 1944, I believe. And she'd be 82 years old. 
and she wouldn't get a lot of acknowledgement for creating these during her lifetime. And, you know, she kind of senses this in her dying days. And she tells her nephew, uh, or she writes it into the will, and she tells her nephew as well, that she doesn't want any of these paintings shown for 20 years. So she's like, after I die, box up all this work, keep it closed for 20 years. The world's not ready for these. So she sees that the world is not ready. It's 1944. Of course, we'd get Jackson Pollock and um, de Kooning and these people at the end of the 1940s, 1950s, they would come along, abstract expressionism becomes a thing and all this. Um, and, you know, Kandinsky and these people have firmly cemented abstract painting as being a thing, but I think, you know, it, their paintings are kind of more design dorkiness in some ways. And I mean that in a nice way. I, I like their paintings, but they're not about this specific idea and spiritual connection. Actually, some of them were interested in these same ideas. That's not true. I shouldn't say that. Some of them were interested in these same sort of ideas, but I think there's a lot of, perhaps because they were teaching abstract painting as well, it's kind of like jazz starts out, you know, in the these grimy cafes and stuff like that. And then it comes into the institution and then people are like, oh, this is how you play jazz piano, you know? But did the first guy have to go to school to learn how to play the piano? Probably not. So there's a certain institutionalized nature of abstract painting that Hilma's paintings uh, just didn't have. So nonetheless, she passes and the paintings are locked up for 20 years. And they would resurface a few times. And I, I think people just don't know. You know, I, I wouldn't doubt the fact that um, painting is undoubtedly a male-dominated sport throughout much of the 20th century, that there was an element of sexism that also kept these paintings from, from gaining recognition. I absolutely would not discount that as a factor. And so they're, they're shown a couple times in the 1970s, they're shown in 1986 in Los Angeles, and people just kinda, they just don't know what to do with them. They're not sure, you know, how do we place these paintings in the canon of painting? They, they don't fit, it's like an Egyptologist saying that, oh, Egypt's actually 5,000 years older. You know, all the <laughs> Egyptology uh, community would probably be up in arms and calling somebody a heretic for saying so. And it's kind of similar in that realm. So Hilma's paintings, and as we begin to have an ability to acknowledge more female artists for the revolutionary people that they are, her work is now, I would say, um, I know her show just last year was one of the most widely visited shows in the United States. So she's got unbelievable amount of tension now and is completely regarded as the pioneer, which she was, thankfully. With that being said, I'd like to just go off a little bit and branch into a little bit of a different topic too, which is for me, like I said before, if we're talking about oil paint, on canvas, geometric shapes that are based on meditations and revelations and these sort of things, 
this is older and you know there's paintings made which are way way older and we got to go way way back to find them but this is something within um, people and their work going back thousands of years so what I'm talking about is the idea of what's called entopic phenomenon and entopic is basically the idea that you're making marks on a page or on a cave wall that are seen within the mind they're not necessarily they're not the apple on the table look how this apple oh look how the shadow is no this stuff is drawings i'm talking about cave paintings early cave paintings there's some in europe there's some in the united states you know they're all over the place there's native american drawings they're they're in africa they're everywhere these these paintings and this types of symbolism and when we an easy way to look at this would be there's a painter called lewis wayne and lewis wayne was a very prominent cat painter he'd made all these paintings of cats and um you know they'd be around a dinner table or whatever or golfing they're kind of like those paintings of dogs playing poker a little bit and so he made all these paintings of cats and then he gradually um became more and more showing more and more symptoms of schizophrenia and if you look at the evolution of his cat paintings you start off with these kind of normal scenes of cats you know having a tea party and then you go towards these very psychedelic almost completely abstract paintings of cats with emanating auras um, and vibrations coming out of them so now this guy is painting things that are within the mind in a certain way they're entopic. So we can go back before that, of course, like I was saying before, you start looking at cave paintings. And a lot of times people believed, you know, people were under the influence of Datura or uh, mescaline or some sort of psychedelic substance at the time. And a lot of times these paintings as well, you're going to see these similar themes. You're going to see concentric circles. When I was actually looking for different um, examples of entopic cave paintings, I saw the circle with the cross inside of it, and it's in a cave in Arizona, I believe. And it's like a Ros Rosicrucian cross, you know? So I think a lot of this type of imagery really is within humans and it can be brought out through things like meditation and if we look at madame blavatsky the woman who starts theosophy remember we were talking about her russian aristocrat goes to tibet right look at look at the art that's happening in these areas look at a, a sculpture of shiva shiva's body is half male and half female inside a circle of fire with these concentric snake-like you know hairs coming out of her head almost or something or their head you know it's just replete within a lot of these different in imageries look at uh islamic mosques you know look at the designs that are happening on the walls there concentric circles interlaying patterns geometric patterns colliding with one another in a spiritual setting inside an actual temple so while I definitely give Hilma credit for being the pioneer of abstract art in 
Europe. I think if we go down the rabbit hole, we can see other people and other peoples and other individuals who also explored similar themes um, as well. So that's all I got for you guys today. Thank you for listening. If you like this sort of thing, head over to painting-course.com. Take my absolutely free painting course just for you. Not even sure why I do it, why I keep it free. Why? Uh, Just too nice, I guess. But head over there, and uh, you can take my class where I have different lessons, and uh, you can become a better painter today. And please don't forget to like, subscribe, write a comment down below of who else you'd like to see me do. And um, yeah, I'll talk to you soon.